That brings us to the third wave of returnees. This is under the leadership of Nehemiah. Artaxerxes is still the same king, and it's only a few years later, about ten years later, that Nehemiah comes. We will find out later that Nehemiah and Ezra are both contemporaries of each other, that they're both leading Israel or Judah together. So it's now the year 445 B.C. 445 B.C. And we are introduced to Nehemiah. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Nehemiah. These are the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. It so happened that in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, I was in Susa, the citadel. This is the capital of Persian Empire. Haniah, who was one of my relatives, along with some of the men from Judah, came to me, and I asked them about the Jews who had escaped and had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. They said to me, The remnant that remains from the exile there in the providence are experiencing considerable adversity and reproach. The wall in Jerusalem lies breached, and its gates have been burned down. His brother-in-law comes and gives him this report that Judah is not doing well. Jerusalem is not doing well. They're trying to rebuild the walls, and it's not happening because lots of people are attacking them. Now remember, back in Ezra, we were given a summary in chapter 4 of all the oppression that kept happening, or the opposition that kept happening. And during the reign of Artaxerxes I, they sent a letter to him saying, Hey, these people are evil, they're not paying taxes, and they're building a temple to rebel against you. You need to stop the temple. And Artaxerxes can't find anything that supports the building of the temple, or sorry, not the building of the temple, the building of the wall, the city wall. And he can't find anything that supports the rebuilding of the wall in the Persian documents, so he issues an edict that this is to come to complete halt and that nobody's allowed to rebuild the wall. And so he supports the opposition against them. So Artaxerxes is already predisposed against Jerusalem building its walls up and is already ruled on the matter. And now Nehemiah is serving as the cupbearer to him. And he finds out this. Verse 4, When I heard these things, I sat down abruptly, crying and mourning for several days. I continued fasting and praying before God of heaven. Then I said, Please, O Yahweh God of heaven, great and awesome God, who keeps his loving covenant with those who love him and obey his commandments, may your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I am praying to you today. Throughout both day and night, on behalf of your servant, the Israelites, I am confessing the sins of the Israelites that we have committed against you. Both I, myself, and my family have sinned, and we have behaved corruptly, uh, corruptly against you and not obeying the commandments of the statutes and the judgments that you commanded your servant Moses. Please recall the word that your command, the word you commanded your servant Moses. If you act unfaithfully, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you repent and obey my commandments and do them, then even if your, dis your dispersed people are in the most remote locations, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen for my name to reside. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your mighty strength and by your powerful hand. Please, O Yahweh, listen to the, attentively to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who take pleasure in showing respect to your name. Grant your servant success today and show compassion to me in the presence of this man. Now I was the cupbearer for the king. So Nehemiah, just like Ezra and just like Daniel, identifies himself with the sin of his people. 
And he prays and repents on that behalf. And he remembers the judgment of God if they're unfaithful, but also the blessings of God if they're faithful. And so basically ask God to bless him and support him and his desire to go back and rebuild the walls. Then he mentions that he's the cupbearer for the king. Now, the last time we saw a cupbearer was Joseph. It's been often taught, and I talked about this way back in Genesis, but it's been a long time. It's often been taught that the cupbearer was the guy who tastes the drink to see if it was poison. And then that means he dies if it is, and not the pharaoh or the king. The problem is that's not what a cupbearer is. We know this for a couple reasons. One, contextually speaking, there's no way that Nehemiah and the cupbearer of the time of Joseph were the people who tasted the drink to see if it's poison. Because the only person that a despot king or pharaoh would get to trace the drink to see if it's poison would be someone you don't care about, a slave or a prisoner. You don't hand to your best friend and say, hey, can you see if this is poisoned? That's not loving. One, he's not going to be your friend for very long. And two, you're probably going to lose all your friends eventually, either by insulting in that way or them dying of poison. If you are taking somebody and having them drink the wine to see if it's poison, they're probably people you don't respect because you don't care if they die. Which means during the time of Joseph, when the cupbearer says, Oh, Pharaoh, that's right, I forgot. You know what? There's a Semitic dog that we're all racist against as Egyptians. He's in prison all, by the way, for committing crimes against a noble woman. You know how much you like that. You should bring him out and listen to everything he has to say. And Pharaoh's like, okay. Like, if you've got some slave that you just don't care about that's tasting drinks to see if they're poison, he tells you that, you're not going to listen to anything he says. And Nehemiah is in the presence, and he's obviously respected. He goes to our exerxes and says, hey, I would like to rebuild the walls. And our exerxes says, here's a blank check. I'll support you. You don't say that to somebody that you don't care about. They die if they drink the poison. So the context of both of these stories suggests that these are men that are respected, which means this can't be what they're doing. Second, we know a lot for archaeological discoveries and writings now and other documents that the reason that these people are cupbearers the reason that you know the drink is not poisonous because they're the ones who prepared the drink. Yes, they are the cupbearers, but they're the cupbearer because they made the wine and they put the wine in the cup and they're bringing the cup to you and you know it's not poison because you trust this guy and he's in charge of everything. Probably the best way to understand the cupbearer is that he's the senior butler. He's the one responsible for everything that comes into the king's palace, both people who want to speak to him and all the food and drink, and he's in charge of vetting it all and making sure that it's all safe, especially the wine, because the wine was the considered the drink of the gods, the drink of the kings. And so that's why he's probably the cupbearer, because the wine is the most precious, the most sacred of all the things that would come into the, the king's presence but he's also responsible for everything else. So you know that people who come in and food, supplies, whatever comes in are going to be safe because this guy is in charge of it and you trust and respect him. That's who Nehemiah is. He may not necessarily be an advisor to the king, but he is a senior butler that is trusted to make sure that everything is thoroughly vetted before it came in. That means that he has direct access to the king, 
but may not always get the king. Like, the king would trust him greatly, but that doesn't mean that the king is going to do whatever he wants. Chapter 2. Then the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was brought to me, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Previously I had not been depressed in the king's presence. So the king said to me, Why do you appear to be depressed when you aren't sick? What can this be other than sadness of heart? This made me very fearful. These Persian kings, they wanted nothing in their presence that would make them uncomfortable. You're not allowed to be upset. You're not allowed to be sad. I mean, these are absolute spoiled little brats. Everything has just got to be hunky-dory, awesome all the time. And if anything comes in that is disturbing or unsettling in any kind of way, who knows? It could set them off. So he says, like, I haven't been depressed ever because I have to keep my happy face on all the time or the king might kill me because he's just in a bad mood that day. Remember, he's trusted. But that doesn't mean that these kings, like, have long patience. They, they don't tolerate much. He's trusted because he's learned to walk on eggshells for a very long time and stay alive, which has increased the king's favor of him. But that doesn't mean that he can just go whenever he wants and tick everything off. He's afraid because now he's so depressed and so sad and so caught up in his thoughts that he just realized that he hasn't been hiding his sadness very well. And when the king saw it, he becomes afraid. What's going to happen to me now? I replied to the king, O king, live forever. Why would I not appear dejected when the city of the graves of my ancestors lie desolate and its great gates destroyed by fire? The king responded. Now, Nehemiah decides to take a risk. He is a lot more brazen than Ezra. Ezra was like, I was too embarrassed to ask for soldiers. Nehemiah takes a rest and must have seen God's hand in this. Well, if the king noticed it, maybe I should say, and then just blurts out like, how could I be happy as long as my city walls are being destroyed and nothing is being rebuilt, king? Now, he probably didn't say with that attitude, but that's easily how the king could have heard it. Because not only you're not supposed to be sat in the king's presence, You're not allowed to say something like that to him. And who's responsible for the walls not being rebuilt? The king. And all of a sudden he's like, king? He could interpret that so many ways. Now, obviously, that's not the tone in Nehemiah's voice. However, people who are self-absorbed narcissistic hear whatever tone they want to hear when things happen. But God was with him. The king responded, what is it that you are seeking? That's an open door to ask for whatever you want, basically. Then I quickly prayed to God of heaven and said to the king, now, this is what I love about Nehemiah. I mentioned this at the very beginning of this book, but Nehemiah is one of the very few times in the Bible that we get these really quick, short prayers that just happen spur of the moment, right in the middle of a scenario. You know this prayer is short, because when the king says, what is it that you want, and you're praying, that's not a long prayer. It's just really quick, like, oh, God, help me. Okay, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to say it. Please be with me. Don't let the X come. Then I quickly prayed to God of heaven and said to the king, if the king is so inclined and if your servant has found favor in your sight, dispatch me to Judah, to the city 
with the graves of my ancestors so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with his consort sitting beside him replied, how long would your trip take and when would you return? He is asking huge because he says not only will you, I'm asking you something in your own palace, but I'm asking for me to walk away. Like, like I'm basically quitting. Like, I'm your your cupbearer. Finding somebody that you can trust to bring everything in your palace without it being killing you is probably a really hard person to find, especially in politics. And so this is a huge risk for Artaxerxes to give up Nehemiah. This is a huge risk for Nehemiah to ask for something from the king, even when the queen, king said it. Now, notice it says his consort. This is the queen. Most likely, they're in a very private chambers. The queens did not sit with their kings in public rulings and banquets and that kind of stuff in the Persian Empire. And so the fact that the queen is with them means that they're probably in private chambers. So they're probably like relaxing in their own living room and enjoying whatever entertainment they have or whatever. And it's just the two of them and a few servants. And Nehemiah's bringing the late night snacks and bonbons to them as they're Netflix binging, okay? And so it's in that moment that he's talking. And it could be that the queen being there has made the king more pleasantly disposed to Nehemiah. Or it could actually be the queen saying, hey, you should take care of him. Okay, you should like listen to him. Because the king is more likely to be brutal, the wife is more likely to be compassionate. So the king then asks, how long would this take? At this point, the king is considering it. If not saying yes, considering it significantly. I said to the king, verse 7, if the king is so inclined, let him give me, um, let me, Give me letters for the governors of the trans Euphrates that will enable me to travel safely until I reach Judah. And later in the letter for Ashpa, the keeper of the king's nature, preserve, so that he will give me timber for beams and for the gates of the fortresses adjacent to the temple and for the city wall and for the house to which I go. So the king granted me these requests for the good hand of my God was on me. Then I went to the governor of the trans-Euphrates, and I presented to them the letters from the king, and the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, when Sanballat and Horonite and Tobai, the Ammonite officials, heard of all this. They were very displeased that someone had come to seek benefit for the Israelites. He basically says, not only let me go, but please also give me money so that I can buy wood to rebuild the city walls and stuff. He's a lot more brazen than Ezra. Ezra would just been too embarrassed. And God used them both in different ways. They have different personalities, but God used them both in different ways with their different personalities. Now, when he arrived with letters saying, our Xerxes is supporting me, the local officials are not happy. The local officials had stopped the rebuilding of the wall. They had won. Now the cupbearer of Artaxerxes comes with letters, with Artaxerxes' approval, with Artaxerxes changing his mind on the building of the wall, and they're not happy. They can't blatantly attack Nehemiah and the wall now because this would be going against Artaxerxes. But they can cloak and dagger try to undermine it behind the scenes. 
as long as it doesn't get back to the emperor. And that's what they're going to proceed to do. Now, Nehemiah has just walked into a physical and political powder keg, about ready to go off. And he's got to rebuild this wall, knowing that Artaxerxes supports him, but knowing that 900 miles away, Artaxerxes is not here, and all he has is a piece of paper, and these officials are very clever at finding loopholes to undermine you that doesn't exactly violate the edict of the king, and they're going to oppose him. And he knows he has to work quickly. Verse 11, So I came to Jerusalem when I had been there for three days, and I got up during the night along with a few men who were with me, but I did not tell anyone what my God was putting on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no animals with me except for the one that I was riding. I proceeded through the valley of the gate by night in the direction of the well of the dragons and the dung gate inspecting the wall of the Jerusalem that had been breached and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I passed under the gate of the well and the king's pole, where there was not enough room for my animal to pass with me. I continued up the valley during the night, inspecting the wall, and then I turned back and came to the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had been doing, for up to this point I had not told any of the Jews or the priests, or the nobles, or the officials, or the rest of the workers. He goes out at night. Nehemiah trusts God, but he is also very clever. He goes out at night, and he begins to go around the entire city, inspecting every part of the wall to see what needs to be done. Knowing that he's a detailed man, he's probably taking lots of notes on what needs to be done. But he doesn't tell anybody. He doesn't tell the enemy because he knows the minute they find out, they're going to start resisting him. The minute he says, I'm going to start rebuilding the wall and I'm going to start here and here and here and here, they're going to immediately start resisting him in some kind of a way. He still has to get supplies down. He still has to organize all of his men. He cannot let the enemy have a head start in opposing him when he hasn't even gotten physically started on the rebuilding of the wall. Likewise, he doesn't even tell his own people. Because the more people that know, the more likely it's going to spread out. Later we're going to find out that Tobiah is related to the high priest. And the high priest is going to favor Tobiah and allow him to come in and have influence in Israel. So Nehemiah has every right to be suspicious of even his own people. And that they might support Tobiah, who is against the wall, thus undermining the wall. So he goes completely on his own and takes his own counsel. And figures it out. Once he has a plan of how to do things, verse 17, Then I said to them, You see the problem that we have. Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned. Come on, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that this reproach will not continue. Then I related to them how the good hand of my God was on me and what the king had said to me. Then they replied, Let's begin rebuilding right away. So they readied themselves for this good project. But when Sanbalt, the Hornite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of this, they derided us and expressed contempt toward us. And they said, What is this that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I responded to them by saying, The God of heaven will prosper us. We, his servants, will start the rebuilding. But you have no just but you have not just or ancient right in Jerusalem. 
So these guys know they can't oppose them directly. So what they begin to do is trash talk them and mock them. Why? What will that do? The more they can mock them, the more the other people might realize, hey, maybe they have something here. And they'll reduce their chances to work. We already know that Tobiah has a lot of relatives that live in Judah. If he publicly mocks Nehemiah, then maybe his relatives will begin to come to his side and they'll begin to then mock Nehemiah as well. And then they'll have influence over more Jews. And eventually Nehemiah will have no Jews that will support him and go with him. And so this is how they're going to undermine him. But it's not going to work. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Elishab, the high priest, and his priestly colleagues arose and built the sheep gate. They dedicated it and erected its doors, working as far as the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of the Hanel. The men of Jericho built adjacent to it, and Jacker, the son of Emory, built adjacent to them. The sons of Hashanai built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and positioned its doors, its bolts and bars, and Mimroth, son of Uriah, the son of Hagath, worked on the second adjacent to them. He begins to go through and talk about every little thing that they build on the wall and all the gates. According to this, Elisha, um, Elishab, the high priest, was the grandson of Joshua from the first return. He's also the one that supports Tobiah. In this case, he's on par with Nehemiah, and he's helping him. But we're going to find out later that this isn't going to last for very long. So basically, Nehemiah starts with the sheep gate. The sheep gate is in the upper right-hand corner of the city of Jerusalem. And he begins to move counterclockwise around the city, rebuilding it. This is how he begins to rebuild the wall. Notice that he starts in the north, where the enemy is more antagonistic. It's the district of Samaria that has been more antagonistic against Jerusalem than anybody else. So that's where he starts, is in the north, and begins to proceed that way. And then he moves down the um, western side of it, because there's also antagonism coming from the Philistine coast towards him. And then on the eastern side, and the south side, there is no opposition. So he saves that for last. Now that doesn't mean they can't ride around and come and oppose them, but still, if you've got to start somewhere, you start where there's the most opposition. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, when Sambal heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was quite upset. He derided the Jews, and in the presence of his colleagues and the army of Samaria, he said, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they be left to, the, will they be left to themselves? Will they again offer sacrifices? Will they finish this in a day? Can they bring these burnt stones to life again from the piles of dust? So basically, you're really pathetic. You're not really good at doing anything, so why are you even trying? Uh, not necessarily true, but people believe lies. Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was with close by, said, If even a fox were to climb up on the wet they are building, it would break down their walls of stones. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Return the reproach on their own head. Reduce them to plunder and in the hand land of the exile. Do not cover their iniquity and do not wipe out their sin from before them, for they have bitterly offended the builders. So they're trash talking, they're mocking, they're trying to destroy the morale of the people, get people to abandon Nehemiah, and Nehemiah just prays, God do not forgive them. 
Nehemiah is most likely not praying, God, never forgive them of any sins. What he's most likely saying is, God, hold them accountable for what they're doing here. Because they're not just mocking Nehemiah. They're going against God's will. God's will is the city be rebuilt. So they're opposing God directly too. And so he's asking that they be dealt with. Verse 6, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. And the people were enthusiastic in their work. And when Sambat Tobiah, the Arab, um, Arab, and Ammonites and the people of Ashdod heard that the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem had moved ahead and that the breaches had begun to be closed, they were very, very angry. All of them conspired together to move with armed forces against Jerusalem and to create a disturbance in it. So we prayed to our God and stationed a guard to protect against them both day and night. So they must be really desperate because now they're willing to oppose Artaxerxes' man and actually begin to physically attack them. Unlike the days of Zerubbabel, the people don't lose heart. Notice that the minute they're opposed by people, they immediately begin to lose heart in rebuilding the temple and gave up. But Nehemiah's generation, they're being attacked and they're being surrounded. They have no wall to protect them and they're not losing heart and they're not giving up. And this is a drastic difference between the two. Nehemiah prays, but he also establishes guards. And what's interesting is Nehemiah has a perfect balance between human effort and trusting in the divine will of God. He doesn't sit on his butt eating bonbons and says, God will protect us. But he also doesn't go and set up guards and say, this is the only way we'll be safe. He executes his wisdom or his efforts and his works as well as praying for God to guide him. Notice that he's prayed more in these two chapters than what we've really seen in all the book of Ezra put together, really. Not, I mean short prayers, not the long prayers, but the short prayers. Then those in Judah said, The strength of the laborers has failed. The debris is so great that we are unable to rebuild the wall. Notice that when they begin to, do, when they begin to lose heart, they're not losing heart because of the people opposing them. Zerubbabel's so people lost heart because of what they were being opposed. They're losing heart because it's overwhelming, the project. The bricks are huge. The piles are huge. There's a lot. They're, they're building and building and building and building and building and building. And then they look at, well, how much do we have left? And they're like, holy crap. Now that we've gotten around the corner, I realize how long this is. Verse 11, our adversaries are also boasted. Before they are aware of and anticipate anything, we will come in among them and kill them, and we will bring this work to a halt. So it happened that the Jews were living near them, came and warned us repeatedly about all the schemes that were plotted against us. So they're also getting constant reports of everything that's being plotted against them. So I stationed people at the lower places behind the wall and the exposed places, and I stationed the people by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And when I had made an, an inspection, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, Don't be afraid of them. Remember the great and awesome Lord that they fight on our behalf, and your brothers, and your sons, and your daughters, and your wives, and your families. It so happened that when our adversaries heard that we were aware of their matters, God frustrated their intentions. Then all of us returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day forward, half of my men were doing their work, and half of them were taking up spears and shields and bows and body armor. We're not told exactly how God frustrated their plans, but we are told that God did frustrate their plans and kept them from hindering them. 
Many arms as men, half of them are armed. Now the officers that were behind all the people of the Judah who were rebuilding the wall, those who were carrying loads did so by keeping one hand on the work and the other on their weapons. The builders to a man had their swords strapped to their sides while they were building, but the trumpeters remained with me. Nehemiah is very brilliant here because he can't give them all swords and expect them to work at the same time. But you also don't have enough soldiers to protect every single person. So he divides his men into three different groups. The ones that are building the walls actually need both of their hands because they're placing the bricks in place and they're putting mortar down. So for them, he straps them up with swords, but tells them to keep both hands free for building the wall. That way they're armed, but they're focused on the building of the wall. Then the men who are carrying things back and forth are told to have a sword in one hand and carry things in the other hand. Now that might slow your progress carrying things with one hand, but as they're carrying things from one place to the other thing, they're getting further and further away from the crowd. There is safety in numbers. And if most of the people are at the wall building and you're walking away from the wall, going off into the quarry or whatever to get blocks, your numbers are getting fewer and fewer and fewer and you're getting further and further away from safety and the wall. So it's better to have a sword in hand when you're all by yourself out in the woods, so to speak, and then to have both hands carrying things and work faster because you don't work fast when you're dead. So then there's another group that he armed them with swords and they're not doing any work and they're in charge of protecting the people that move back and forth. So he's divided them into stations so that they're all armed, but they're all at ready to fight at different levels in that sense. It's, it's difficult enough to build things, but when you're constantly in danger of being attacked all the time, that's even more threatening. Verse 19, I said to the nobles and the officials and all the rest of the people, the work is demanding and extensive, and we are spread out on the wall, far removed from one another. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, gather here with us, our God will fight for us. Now he also stations trumpeters, so they're looking out, and they see an attack, they'll blow the trumpet, and he commands everybody to gather together, and he says, if we do this efficiently, we will be safe, because God is our true warrior. That shows his balance between the material realm of practicality as well as the spiritual realm of trusting in God's divine power. He is taking every precaution, but yet he ultimately knows that it doesn't matter how well armed they are or how efficient they are, if God is not with them, they're not safe. Verse 21, So we worked on with half-holding spears from dawn till dusk. At the time I instructed the people, let every man and his co-workers spend the night in Jerusalem and let them be guards for us by night and workers by day. We did not change clothes, nor I, nor my relatives, nor my workers, nor the watchmen who were with me. Each had his weapon, even when getting a drink of water. Not changing clothes, not taking a whole lot of breaks, constantly working, always afraid of being attacked. This is their life. Notice how Nehemiah is just constantly trusting God. He is an exception to many people in the Bible just constantly praying short little prayers over and over and over again and constantly saying, God is with us, God is with us, and God is with us. That has drastically changed the demeanor of everybody with him. 
We did not see Zerubbabel talk like that. God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. We did not see him constantly saying short little prayers. As a result, the minute they encountered little opposition, they immediately halted their building of the temple and stopped for a long time. It took the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to come in and rebuke them for them to get going again. Yet, with Nehemiah, he's constantly saying, God is with us, God is with us. He's also putting plans into action in order to protect them. He's constantly saying little prayers over and over and over again. You know that attitude has contagious, it's, it's affected, it's carried over to everybody he's leading. As a result, they're not losing hope. They're not giving up. They're working day and night. They're not changing clothes. They're constantly going everywhere with a sword all the time. That is incredible leadership, incredible optimism, incredible trust in Yahweh to be able to keep his people going like that and without giving up. And they won't. They do not give up until they build the temple. And over and over again, it keeps saying God frustrated the enemy's plans and God did this and God was with them. Nehemiah is a really good example of practical effort as well as absolute trust in Yahweh that affects the way that he looks out his outlook on things and is contagious in the lives of the people around him. The only other people that person I've ever thought of that fits this is Boaz. When Boaz comes into the fields and everybody's like, may Yahweh be with you. And he's like, may Yahweh be with you. I mean, do bosses and employees talk like that at work? Like not even in Christian environment. And so the reality is this is an incredible man who really truly trusts in God and really believes that God is with them, God will protect them, that what he's doing is truly of God, and that has affected his demeanor. It's carried over into their hope and morale, and yet at the same time, he is working in the kingdom of God and working hard to make sure that God's plans are executed. And Nehemiah, I think, is a great example of what it means to be a leader over people in a lot of ways.